Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man, a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher any more." But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Grass withers and the flower fades, and the word of our Lord will abide forever. You may be seated. Come to a story this morning with uh, some unique features, or rather, a couple of stories with an, a unique arrangement. That is, we have an account of one story that's nestled into the telling of another story. Now, this appears in the same way, sandwiched like this, in each of the Gospels that it appears. And so, the uniqueness of this arrangement leads us to consider how are these two stories supposed to work together. What is it that the Spirit wants to communicate to us as His people that setting these alongside one another helps us understand? Now for the setting, remember from last week, Jesus has just been across the lake. He's been in Gentile territory where He's encountering all sorts of different uncleanness, including the uncleanness of a legion of demons over whom He has demonstrated His authority and power. And so when verse 40 tells us when Jesus returned, it's speaking of him coming back from across the lake, back from Gentile territory, and now back among his own people. And when he comes back, the crowd welcomes him, for they are all waiting for him. And maybe all of you noticed this before, but it really took to this story for it to be 
for me to notice that the crowd has almost become another character in this story. Um, And the crowd will continue to function as another character in this story as we go forward. But here we are, and the crowd is portrayed in a fairly positive manner. They're waiting. They want Jesus to come back. They're eager to see him. Now, in the past, the, the crowd has been described as eager not just to be healed, not just to see the magnificent signs, but also to hear Jesus' teaching. And so here, I think, we have the crowd again portrayed very positively, at least receiving Jesus much more cordially than the reception that he experienced across the lake from the people of the Gerasenes. But now, from among the crowd, a person of some distinction approaches. Verse 41, And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. Now, the ruler of a synagogue, this would have been a man in charge of organizing worship of the synagogue in that town. His duties would have included taking care of the the property of the synagogue, procuring all the necessary supplies for the service, selecting the readings, selecting the prayers, assigning the different people to the different roles in the service. So again, this is someone who's fairly prominent. And this is good for us because it's a reminder, it will be a reminder in what he's about to do, that it isn't the entire religious leadership that is rejecting and opposing Jesus at this point. Now, we have looked at the leaders in the past and their negative reaction, but Jairus is one of these exceptions. There were some of that class, of that ruling class, who actually did believe in Jesus. Later, we'll hear of Nicodemus. We'll hear of Joseph of Arimathea, both who are members of the religious leadership, but believe in Jesus. And actually, the fact that Jairus' name is given, if you look at that, some of the miracles include the name of the person who was healed and others didn't. Um, The fact that his name is mentioned indicates a good possibility that he becomes a well-known member of the Christian community after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. And so, he is coming as one of these who believes in Jesus. And not just believing, but in fact, as we see next, someone willing to acknowledge Jesus as his superior. And how does he do this? Well, he falls down at Jesus' feet. He comes begging. We have just seen some begging in the last story, of the demons begging Jesus not to cast them into the abyss. Here's someone else now, falling at Jesus' feet again, this time begging for something very much different. He implores him to come to his house. What is it that has produced this humble attitude in him? Well, it's the kind of thing that often produces that response in all of us. And that is, some impending personal tragedy. Same kind of circumstance that oftentimes makes us consider our, our limitations and our dependence upon God. And this is a personal tragedy of the worst kind. For it says he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. So here, this man with a daughter, at least his only daughter possibly his only child, one on the very threshold of stepping into womanhood, but a womanhood that it looks as though she's never going to enter because here she is dying. Now, Luke doesn't tell us what Jesus said in response to this request. He simply reports that Jesus goes with him. But that 
as Jesus went, the people pressed around him. This is an interesting word. The, the only other time it's been used so far in Luke, it's about the thorns that choke out the desires. So you get the picture of this crowd swamping Jesus, impeding his forward progress, making it difficult to move, pressing up against him. And so, as we've already seen happen in the past, we saw it in the house of the paralytic, we saw it with Jesus' family, this crowd and its zeal to be with Jesus is actually presenting an obstacle to his work. Now put yourself in Jairus' shoes at this point. Your daughter is, as another gospel says, on the point of death, at the verge of death. You've come, you've sought this teacher, you're bringing him and the crowd is slowing him down and keeping him from getting to your house. Imagine how that would feel. But Jairus is not the only person in the crowd with a desperate need. Verse 43. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Now, the first scripture reading. You heard what that would mean for this woman. And we see by what we're about to discuss, that Jesus didn't leave all the uncleanness on the other side of the lake. There is uncleanness here too. And there is death and there is disease as he ministers among his own people. She is ceremonially and religiously unclean and imparting her uncleanness to everything and to everybody with whom she comes into contact. Unable to participate in Israel's national worship. Unable to participate in the assembly. Unable to be touched. And not only that, she's experienced and suffered from this condition for 12 years. As long as Jairus' daughter has been alive, this woman has suffered from this malady and everything that goes along with it. And it appears as though not only is her condition chronic, but it's hopeless. Luke tells us, though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. Anything that can be done by anyone who can do anything has been done and it hasn't accomplished anything. We're fortunate to have a record of some of the remedies that were used in the ancient world for a condition like this. A wine mixed with rubber and crocuses and onions that you drink right before someone comes up and frightens you from behind. Maybe it's not all that great of a mystery as to why the physicians were not able to do anything for this woman. Nobody could. This is the point. But now, now these stories of what Jesus has done, what Jesus has been doing, what kind of people Jesus has helped, these stories... Luke keeps repeating, are going out into all the surrounding regions. They're filling this land. They're coming to the ears of many desperate people. And no doubt this woman is one who has heard such stories. And now, now is her chance. Now, here's a woman who's not as likely to have a path open up in the crowd for her as Jairus was. The best that she is able to do is squeeze through and sneak up. However, this is an advantage to her. Because given her condition, given probably how the people in that town know what her condition is and what it means, 
She needs cover. She needs to approach Jesus quietly and secretly in order to avoid making a scene. And so, verse 44, she comes up behind him and touches the fringe of his garment. Now consider what it is she's doing here. Consider especially in light of what we read in the passage from Leviticus. What the legal consequences, what the ceremonial, what the religious consequences of this could be. She, an unclean woman who defiles everybody that she touches, has now come up and she has touched Jesus. Whatever reticence she's had has been overpowered by her desire to be healed. Now, if we think back to one of the the first miracles that's recorded in this, we already know, as the readers, we've already learned from Jesus' earlier story of healing the leper by touching him, which we already saw he didn't have to do because he could just say, you're healed and it's done. We know that Jesus is not defiled by the uncleanness of others, but rather what happens is that his cleanness goes out and purifies all of the corruption with which it comes into contact. And that is what happens again. Whatever effect in this woman's mind that this touch might or should have had upon Jesus, the effect upon her is immediate, it's unambiguous, it's perfectly clear. She knows immediately her discharge of blood ceased. However, despite her best efforts, the touch does not go unnoticed. Jesus says, who was it that touched me? Of course, given the circumstances that we've described of thorns choking plants and the crowd jammed together and nobody able to move, it does seem like something of a, of a silly question. When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. Uh, who touched you? Everybody's touching you. What are you asking? But Jesus has something more specific in mind. Something special that he knows has just happened, and he's not going to let it go. 46, Jesus said, Someone touched me in this way. I perceive that power has gone out from me. This was not just a pressing crowd. This was a touch that resulted in Jesus' divine power going out and doing its divine work of stopping death, the flow of blood, of cleaning and purifying uncleanness. This power has gone out from him and it's accomplished this. Again, this is something else that we read about earlier. The crowds touching Jesus, power going out from him and them being healed. Now, we've got a question here. Maybe it's not completely necessary that we answer it, but it's fun to raise. Did Jesus really not know who it was? Uh, well, we do read some things in the Gospels where Jesus, in his humanity, is operating on a human level and asking things like, where have you laid him for Lazarus' tomb? Um, we've been exploring that connection and sometimes those confusing connections between Jesus' humanity, which is real, and his divinity, which is just as real, And so really, theologically, this could go either way. But I think the way the story unfolds and results, I think he knows. I think he knows what's happened and who it is. The woman sees that he is not going to let the matter rest. 
and she comes forward. Luke says, when the woman saw that she was not hidden, meaning at least she gets the idea, okay, he knows it was me. And I just can't stand here in silence while the rest of the crowd is saying, no, it wasn't me, it wasn't me. So she comes and she comes, Luke tells us, trembling. Why trembling? Well, again, think about what has just happened. Is she going to be reprimanded for her action? An unclean woman touching this holy teacher? Is that reprimand perhaps going to include the reversal of her healing? What does she expect? We don't know, but we know that overcoming fear, again, her trembling does not keep her from coming and, like Jairus, falling down before him and now declaring in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And Jesus responds. And he says to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Now, daughter, daughter, what an address. What a way of speaking to someone who couldn't have been much, if any younger, than Jesus, based on the length of her condition. But what? What a familiar, what a tender, what a welcoming affirmation she receives upon her confession. Daughter, the only person in the Gospels that we ever read Jesus calling by this name. Daughter. And then he speaks of her faith. Now remember how prominent a theme this has been in Luke's story that he's telling over all. We've been reading again and again about faith all the way back to Zechariah when the first announcement was coming of God's redemptive activity being underway. The faith of Mary in listening to the announcement of Gabriel and believing that the Lord would fulfill what he had promised. The different responses to people along the way who are healed because of their faith in Jesus. The story that we just left where the disciples are rebuked because of their fear. Because what does their fear show? That they did not have The faith. But this woman's faith, this woman's faith has overcome her fear. And that faith, Jesus says, has made you well. Now, these words. The words themselves could just mean something as simple as, you're believing that you would be healed if you touched me, is what healed you? And the ESV sort of seems to take it that way. Your faith has made you well. It's cured your bodily ailment. But I think we've got a, a lot of reason here to look and see that there's a bit more going on than just this woman's body being healed. Consider this first. Consider our first scripture reading. Consider that this woman's particular physical malady was a picture. It was a picture that the law of Moses had assigned to represent sin, and more particularly, the uncleanness that comes from sin. And also through all the regulations that were attached to it, the law of Moses sets this forward as a picture of the resulting separation. The separation that the uncleanness of sin sin brings, the exclusion from God's presence, the exclusion from full fellowship with His people. But what reason is there to think that this malady in this particular instance 
is re- representing that. Well, first of all, consider the literal words, which I wish the ESV had done, because you would at least be able to see the connection at that point. The literal words that Jesus says is, your faith has saved you, he says to her. And I think this is probably the strongest individual reason for seeing something more as having happened here than the woman's body being healed. For this reason, this exact language has been used not too long ago and the story about the sinful woman who came and anointed Jesus' feet. Actually, the exact same words are spoken to her as to this woman. What's the significance of that? Well, that woman was not healed of any physical malady. She was forgiven of her sins. Think back to a number of other stories. Consider the paralytic. Remember, his friends drop him through the roof at Jesus' feet. Obviously, why? He can't walk. He's paralyzed. And what does Jesus say first? Your sins are forgiven. Comments on the faith. Well, then what happens? Well, remember, the leadership at that point says, who is this guy that says he can forgive sins? And Jesus says what? It's easy for me to say, your sins are forgiven. What's easier, to say that or to say, Get up and walk, which he proceeds to do. Get up and walk, and the man obeys. The man is able to obey because Jesus has healed him. But you have that close connection there again between the healings that Jesus is doing and what they really represent, and that is the forgiveness of sins. Finally, we see in the example of Levi, who's called, again, no physical malady, He's sitting there at the table with all of these sinners and the Pharisees are upset because he's sitting with sinners. And how does Jesus explain the situation? He explains himself as the physician and these people as the sick. This is the connection that Jesus is making all the way through the gospel with every healing that he undertakes. I am showing you these things on the surface so that you will know and you will believe what I can do that's under the surface, what I can do that's even more necessary and more important. We're reminded that Jesus' healings are not an end in themselves. These people Jesus healed, these people Jesus rose from the dead, died. You understand that? These were temporary Signs of what he could do permanently. And it seems that this is what we're being reminded of here. That this woman is healed of her physical malady, but more importantly, she is saved from the spiritual condition of which her physical malady is only a picture. And the uncleanness and the sin associated with it is done away with. She is saved by faith as a daughter. Now, I think this would also seem to answer the question of why Jesus didn't just let this go, but why he forces this reveal, why he forces her to come forward, why he won't let it go until he has this personal confrontation and interaction with her. She could have gotten away anonymously, perhaps, if a physical healing was all that she wanted or all that she needed. After all, we've been reading stories of people who aren't even in Jesus' presence. They're at home and someone has come on Jesus' behalf and all of a sudden they're healed. 
being with Jesus and talking to Jesus was not necessary for her body to be healed. We've seen that over and over again. But for the spiritual healing, something more was needed, and that is this personal encounter with Christ and a confession, a public declaration of her faith in Him and of what He has done for her. And there's something more that she needed for her own benefit that this connection enables her to receive, and that is this declaration of her being welcomed into God's family, of her being given peace, of her being saved, not just bodily, but fully and completely. And with that, Luke brings this woman's part of the story to a close. And we see and have been able to see what is truly to be gained by faith in Christ. But now, the story with which he began picks back up. Now we move into the conclusion of Jairus' story. While he was still speaking, someone comes from the ruler's house. Now Jairus is standing here, probably frustrated from the delay, but now seeing what Jesus has done, and taking that as an encouragement of what Jesus will be able to do for his own daughter who's sick. And here comes this messenger. Now, similarity between the two conditions being suffered by these two women, the one, this loss of blood, is again a very sign of slowly dying, losing your life, slowly. Jairus' daughter is in a similar situation, her life ebbing away. And we've just seen how much significance there is attached to what has happened with this woman. And I think maybe that's why these two stories are connected here in this way. So that when we come into the second half, we're asking the same kind of questions. If this is what this meant, this bodily healing for this woman, what is represented here by the the death of this girl that's coming? Because death also is a picture of sin. It can almost be said that death is the picture of sin. A picture first of the living death that all people endure in their sin, unable to respond to God, unable to keep His commandments, unable and unwilling to do anything that's actually truly good. But even more terribly, death is also a picture of the ultimate end and penalty of sin. And that is eternal separation from God and complete and utter hopelessness. And it's this picture that has not just been drawing nigh to Jairus' house, but has now come to that house. And this messenger who approaches says, your daughter is dead. And the question occurs to us, but certainly with more force, this question occurs to Jairus. Is it too late? The messenger thinks so. The messenger says, do not trouble the teacher anymore. The implication being, there isn't anything else the teacher can do. At this point, the woman, the young woman is dead. Now, we though as readers, right? Um, We've already seen him in a very similar situation. We've seen him in Nain. We've seen how he walks up to 
A widow's son who has just passed away comforts the widow, speaks to the young man, raises him to life. We know he can do that. We've seen this already. But now, the story of the woman with the flow of blood has brought us to a place where we can look at this in a little bit different way and ask the bigger question, connection connected to what death means. And that is, okay, the uncleanness of sin. Jesus can deal with that. But what about the ultimate penalty and end of sin? What about death? Is there anything that Jesus can really do about death and its full and it's an eternal terror? Imagine all of these things weighing upon Jairus as he hears this news. And immediately Jesus, knowing what he must be thinking, turns to him. And we see this act of compassion as he speaks to him, encouraging him and says, Don't be afraid. Only believe, and she will be well. And here again, we see this pair, this pair that doesn't belong together, this opposition between fear and faith. Don't be afraid. Do not fear, he says, but believe. And Jesus says, by implication, I've set out to help you. I'm responding to your request. I've set out to save your daughter. Believe that I can, believe that I will, and believe that death can't stop me. And the two continue on. In verse 51, when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and the mother of the child. This is the first indication in Luke's gospel of this inner circle of these three apostles that we'll see in this trio going forward a couple of times. But here again, another one of these instances where Jesus doesn't want attention being called to what he's doing. Boy, I really wish I could figure out what makes a difference in one situation or another. It makes me feel better that none of the commentators can feel, uh, figure it out either. But think about this. Just right across the lake, just before this, Jesus said what? to the man whom he had just healed. Go and tell everybody what I've done. He's just made a point of making sure that the entire crowd sees what happens with this woman. And now, the same, the same walk, he gets to this situation and he says, I don't want everyone to see this. I'm going to do this for this very small audience. I don't know why, but he does. Well, I have a suggestion at the end here. Here's one possibility. The physical healings have become too much of a focus for the crowd. We see this. Now, we're coming up on Jesus feeding the thousands here. Um, if you look in John, Jesus calls the crowd on this, out on this. You just want to see tricks. You just want food. Sometimes he knows that's what the crowd is after. Is that possibly what's happening here is is he concerned that the people are being distracted from the deeper uh, spiritual significance of what it is he's doing he comes to the house all are weeping and mourning for her now for us we would probably get this picture of here's the family here are the people close to them and everyone's really sad well for the ancient reader they would have understood no the hired wailers are there 
Okay, so this is what you would do at a funeral. There were people that, that's what their job was. I don't know what their business card said, but when somebody died in your house, they would come and they would wail. And they would help everybody else get to wailing. That was their particular skill set. And so all are weeping and mourning for her. And the, the fact that these aren't people who are deeply moved by this girl's death is evident in how they respond to what Jesus says. They go to laughing pretty quickly. So Jesus comes and here are these professional mourners all making this racket. And he has something strange to say to them. He says, ESV again, do not weep. I like, stop wailing, which I think is more the point. She's not dead, but sleeping. Again, keep in mind, these are professional mourners. They know death when they see it. And they laughed at him. Knowing, not thinking, knowing that she was dead. What does Jesus mean by doing this? What does he mean by saying this? What benefit is it that he does this? Well, if you look at the effect of his comment, it seems to be a further and a stronger confirmation that physically speaking, yes, this girl is dead. The mocking of the professional mourners gets the point across to us as the readers. She's dead. They know it. And you imagine the questions that are, that are going through these people's minds. Who is this guy? Does he think that he can cause people not to be dead just by saying you're not dead? Yes, he does. This is exactly what he thinks. And now that the crowd, the mocking crowd, is excluded from the scene, he shows that he thinks so because it's true. Taking her by the hand, again, touch in Luke, especially touch of the unclean, the lepers, the menstruous, the dead. He touches her, takes her by the hand, and he says, child, arise. And the young lady obeys the command which only his word could ever enable her to obey. And her spirit returns, and she got up at once. And just to make it perfectly clear that what has just happened really has just happened, Jesus says, give her something to eat. This is going to happen again in this gospel later on. What's the point here? She's not a ghost. This is not a hallucination. This is a real little girl restored to real life who's able to eat real food. And what probably amounts to the chief understatement of the whole account, verse 56 tells us that her parents were amazed. But he, again, charges them not to tell anyone what has happened. Now, what can this mean at this point? I mean, obviously, it's not going to be possible to conceal the fact that this young girl who was just so publicly affirmed as dead is now alive. But Jesus, for this particular raising, again, for some undisclosed reason, doesn't want a fanfare with what he does this time. The lesson that's proclaimed in this miracle, the lesson about the deeper spiritual significance of Jesus' power, the lesson is not yet for the crowd as a whole. It's not even for all of his disciples at this point. 
It's for his small group of three, and it's for the girl's parents. Jesus saves from death. Why has Luke written all of these things? He told us, so that we might have certainty concerning the things we have been taught, the things that Jesus began to teach and to do. Why is it worth our time here, thousands of miles away, thousands of years later, to consider what Jesus did here so that we can be entertained by interesting stories? No. We have these, and we have the certainty that comes with them because they have relevance to us. And what is that relevance? Do we have these stories so that we can learn how to have our own bodily ailments healed? And so that we can have our own physical deaths postponed? Or, as some seem to think, do we have the stories about the power of faith so that we can win the lottery or get better grades or experience some other success in life? Is that why we have these stories? Here's how Jesus can give you what you want. No. It's not the point of the stories for us. It wasn't the point of the stories for them. It wasn't the point of the healings themselves at the time. Bodily healing, postponement of physical death, was pointing to something else. Now, Jesus is being set before us by Luke and this gospel as the solution to a much deeper and much more fundamental and a much more terrible problem than flows of blood and physical death. And he's setting Jesus forth as the much more glorious solution to this more significant problem. This is not a problem that's limited to people living in the first century in the Middle East. This applies to every person through every age, including all of you who are sitting here in this room and all of you who are watching through the live feed. And that is the problem of sin. This problem that is inherent in the fact that each and every one of us has done and has said and has thought things that we know we ought not to have done, we ought not to have said, we ought not to have thought. Things that we know are contrary to the one who's given us our very life and existence. And why is this a problem? Because of the fruit that that yields in our life. We have the more immediate fruit of sin, this uncleanness. Like this woman with this flow of blood, we are, because of our sin, we're unclean in God's sight. We are unfit for fellowship with Him. And because of that, By nature, we're separated from him. And we're separated from the one who is the source and the sum total of everything that is good and everything that is life. And so, at the same time, in addition to our uncleanness, our sin brings death. First of all, the kind of death that the woman was experiencing, this slow flowing away of our life, Until finally, as is pictured by the young girl, that death takes us ultimately, spiritually, eternally, and terribly. The variety of people that Luke has been throwing in, Gentiles on the other side of the lake, rulers of synagogues, older women, younger women, 
no matter who you are, no matter what kind of respect you enjoy in your community. From the most highly regarded all the way down to the most lightly esteemed and even to the most despised, whatever other problems you're experiencing, whether in your relationships, whether in your finances, whether in your bodily health, no matter what other problems you're experiencing, this is the one you have to have resolved. This is the state in which all of us begin, unclean, in a broken relationship with God, living while dead and headed toward ultimate death. And this is where you are until something is done about it. And it's this problem that Luke wants to address. And it's this problem for, what, for which Luke wants us to see Christ as the glorious and only solution. And it's this solution to this problem which Luke is pointing and to which Jesus himself is pointing every time he performs an astounding miracle of healing. And so this is for you. This pair of stories, this is for you. If you are still in your sins, if you are still in your uncleanness, if you are still in this living death, if you are still headed toward eternal death, Luke has extremely good news for you. All these years later, all these miles away, and all of this different context, here's the good news. There isn't any aspect of sin that is too strong for Jesus to deliver you from. He can make you clean. He can bring you into God's family. He can give you peace with God. He can give you life. He can give you eternal life. He can do this. He can do this still. He can do this today. And what do we learn from the people who have experienced this from him in these stories? Well, we learn how we can experience this. How can we be delivered? We ask him to deliver us. We humble ourselves like Jairus. We humble ourselves like the woman. We admit our inability to do anything about this problem ourselves. And we ask him believing that he can, he can help you. And you can believe this because you can read about all the other things that he was able to do. He has the power to do this. But maybe what's harder even for us sometimes is to believe this. Believe that he will do this for you. You can believe this because he's promised it. He has promised us that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved just like this woman. Everyone. Now, there's still some things in the shadows. Some things I want to bring out right now, but we're going to hit harder going on. This whole thing is possible, not merely because of the power that Jesus has inherent in him. There's something else that has to happen. All of this salvation that we have in Christ is possible only because of what is coming later in this story. 
but what is essential for us to know, what is essential for us to believe, and that is that the reason is Christ is able to save us is because he is about, again, to go to the cross. And he is about to pay the penalty of death for the sin of his people. And then he is about to be raised by the power of God and declared and vindicated righteous by that resurrection so that we can share in that righteousness. The scriptures tell us that this is what we need to believe in our hearts and what we need to confess with our mouths like the woman Jesus called before her. Ask Jesus to save you. Believe he can save you. Believe he will save you. Make that belief known. And don't be afraid. Fear is the opposite of faith. Don't be afraid of how impossible this all looks. Don't be afraid that you're being duped. Don't be afraid that you might not be good enough. Don't be afraid what people might think of you if you believe this. Don't be afraid. Only believe and you will be made well. You will be clean. You will be at peace with God. You will be received into God's family. And you will never really die. Your death, when it comes, will be no more than a sleep from which one day Christ will awaken you. Now, those of you who have come to Christ... These things I just read are the things that you've already been given, that you are presently enjoying. And so my first encouragement to you would be to reflect on these things, reflect on the benefits and the blessings, the great riches that you've been given by Christ through your faith. Meditate on them. Be amazed at them. And reflect especially on how much greater these things that we've just discussed how much greater these things are than any material or bodily blessing you can receive in this life. But we, ha- we too have to remember the other lessons that Jesus teaches here. We have to remember, first of all, that we're not dealing with some impersonal force in our salvation, some nameless power. We are closing with a person. A person from whom we don't fully benefit unless we are engaged with him personally. We can't be like the one who receives Christ's blessings and then attempts to slip anonymously into the crowd without encountering him. Christ is a person. He's a person with whom we ought to have a connection and for whom we ought to have affection and with whom we ought to talk. And, as we learn from this woman, a person about whom we ought to talk. Our Savior, our personal Savior, who saved us from death and uncleanness. This is someone with whom we ought to be eager to identify in the public view. This is a work that we ought to be eager and joyful to let others know about. And we too we too have to remember to resist fear because fear continues to come as a temptation. And often the same fears as we experience before we've come to Christ. Does Christ really have the power to eliminate the ultimate sting 
of death? Does Christ really have the heart to regard someone as prone to wander away as myself, to regard me as part of his family, as someone he loves? Will Christ really do what he has promised? And these questions and these fears, these are what his word is for. These are what this word is for. These are what this story is for. When we're faced with these doubts, when we encounter these questions, we take up the sword of the word. We remind ourselves of Jesus' mighty works in the past and we take courage and we put away our fear and we'll believe. Jesus saves from sin. Let's pray.